Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Maybe you remember learning that song or singing that song. And the last line of that first verse says, And the walls came, what? Tumbling down. Wonderful song about a wonderful passage in God's Word. We're going to look at that passage in depth this morning and draw some uh, lessons from it, some application from it for our lives. And so if you look with me in Joshua chapter 6, I want to talk to you about the fall of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, we will begin reading in verse 1. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is truth with no mixture of error. I believe the Bible is perfect without error from Genesis to Revelation. It is a sword that divides the soul and the spirit. It is a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. It is God-breathed truth. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Let's pray. Father, we pause in this moment once again to give you glory. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. And you are the reason that we're here. And you are the center of attention. It's all about you. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word today, that you would, by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the truths of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to respond to the truths of Scripture. Lord, may we in this moment magnify Christ and magnify the gospel and magnify the glory of your great name. So have your way in our midst. Lord, I believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we, Lord, ask and pray all of this today in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Joshua divides into four parts. The first part is Israel, go into the land. The second part is Israel, take the land. The third part is Israel, Divide up the land among the tribes. And the fourth part is Israel thrive in the land. Well, we've made it through part one, go into the land. We've seen how God parted the river Jordan and led his people from the east side of the Jordan into the promised land. He brought them to Jericho and they were ready to go to the second stage, which is to begin to take the land 
from the peoples living there. And so after much preparation, much instruction, much encouragement, many lessons learned, God now has Joshua the general before him as he gives him instructions ready to lead the people of Israel against the first test, the mighty walled city of Jericho. And it's fascinating to see how this story unfolds. So I want to show you three aspects of this story, or three scenes, if you will, of this story. First of all, I want you to see with me the unusual strategy. It begins with a very unusual methodology for taking a walled city. We just read it there uh, in chapter 6, but look what it says in verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And so this is God's... uh, These are God's orders for Joshua as to how they are to go against the city of Jericho. And it's interesting that the warriors aren't center stage here. The preachers and the musicians are. I mean, think about that. Get the musicians, get the priests, and they'll lead the warriors around the city six times. On the seventh day, they'll march around the city seven times. This is very unconventional. You know, the conquest of a walled city in this day and time was a major challenge. A scholar by the name of Yadin has listed five ways that a walled city could be captured. Number one, by going over the wall using ladders, ramps, or something else, ropes. Number two, by digging a tunnel under the wall. Number three, by smashing a hole through the wall. Number four, by laying siege until the city is starved into submission. Or number five, by some sort of subterfuge, like you know the, the Trojan horse or something of that nature. Those are the five ways that an army would capture a fortified city. But God doesn't uh, instruct Joshua to do any of those five things. His strategy is very unconventional. Or you might say it like this, the Lord's instructions are a radical departure from the normal means of capturing a city. March, six days, march seven times, blow the trumpet, shout. I mean, that's unconventional, isn't it? But God, listen, loves to move through unconventional means. We see it here in chapter 6 of Joshua. We see it all throughout the Bible. The, the major, one of the major storylines of God's Word is this. God uses seemingly foolish means and weak people so that He gets the glory. When, when this chapter is said and done and Jericho is captured, spoiler alert, when Jericho is captured... No one's going to give the glory to Joshua. I mean, his leadership is revered, but everyone understands that if it were not for the Lord, this city would not be captured because the unconventional means that God instructs his people to use. And again, we see this all throughout the Bible. In the book of Judges, we see Gideon going against the Midianites with with torches and pitchers. That's unconventional, isn't it? We see David attacking a giant 
with no armor on, and instead of a sword, he has a sling and a stone, the tools of a shepherd. That's unconventional. And, and yet, in Gideon's case, in David's case, God is the one who gives the victory. God loves to move in unconventional ways through weak people in perplexing ways so that when it's all said and done and victory is won, God gets the glory. And that's what he's doing here in Joshua chapter 6. Perhaps the best example of this in all of God's word, God using weak things to bring about victory, is the cross. Think about it. Jesus, crucified, a criminal's death, hanging there in suffering and shame between two robbers. And yet in the weakness of the cross, God brings about available salvation for all of those who repent and turn to Christ. God is winning through Christ and His weakness a a wonderful victory over sin. That's why over in 1 Corinthians 1.18 the Bible says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It goes on to say, But God chose what is Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no, listen, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God use weak people and why does God use unconventional means so that no one can boast? And when it's all said and done and the victory is won, Everyone will will lift their eyes to the God who gave the victory. God uses weak means, which is great news for your weak pastor. And if you feel weak and frail, then you are a prime candidate to be used by God. If you feel like you bring nothing to the table, you are a prime candidate for God to do mighty, victorious things through your life. Because God loves to use weak people. Now listen, the opposite is also true. If you think you got it all together, if you think you're God's gift to God's kingdom, don't expect God to use you. Because if God uses you, you'll get the glory. Listen, God uses weak, humble people to achieve His purposes just like He used unconventional means to capture the city of Jericho. So... The first scene of this story is the unusual strategy. But there's a second scene, a second aspect I want you to see, and it is the, the unquestioning obedience of Joshua and the people. The unquestioning obedience. Uh, look what happens in verse 8. God gave the instructions in verse 8. It says, And just as Joshua had commanded the people, he took God's orders to him and he gave them to his generals who gave them to the soldiers and to the priests. It says the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once 
And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Now imagine how eerie all of this was for the residents of Jericho. They're looking out. They're expecting attack. Instead of attack, they just see them marching in silence except for the blowing, the incessant blowing of ram's horns. Can you imagine how this caused them fear? And trembling. They're already scared, it says. They didn't go out or come in. They, they, they had the city shut up. And just imagine how the, the tension and the angst was building as they saw this, this mighty army marching around their city for six days. And then in verse 15 it says, On the seventh day they arose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city Seven times, and the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. More on that in a couple of weeks. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the walls came tumbling down. That's not what it says. The walls fell down flat. They just collapsed. They fell down Flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And so God gives these very unusual instructions, and the people of Israel obey God perfectly, unquestioning. They, they, they march around six times uh, for six days. The seventh day, which seven is the number of completion, they march around seven times. And they blow the horns, they shout a shout, the walls fall down flat. Now, what would cause the Israelites, Joshua, the generals, the fighting men, the priests, the musicians, what would cause them to obey God like this? Well, the answer is found over in Hebrews 11, verse 30. The Hebrews Hall of Fame, it says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. After they had been encircled for seven days. Their, listen, their immediate and full obedience was fueled by faith. That, that's, where, that's the origin of obedience. If you don't obey God, if there's an area of disobedience in your life, it's because you don't believe at your core that what God commands is what's best for your life. Right? You're, you're living without faith. But when you believe that what God says is what's best, then you will obey him radically, even if it doesn't make sense. And so Hebrews says their unquestioning obedience was fueled by faith, and the walls came down, they fell down flat, 
because of their faith. God moved in response to their belief in His promises and in His instructions. Which leads us to this conclusion. If you and I are going to live lives of radical obedience, we must possess great faith. Because faith fuels obedience. Now, there are some areas that you and I need to have great faith in. For example, we must possess great faith in, first of all, the promises of God. Look what it says in Joshua 6, verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand. Now, the battle wasn't started yet. The walls had not fell down flat yet. But it's such a certainty that God says, Joshua, I've given you Jericho. Isn't that interesting? Before the battle was even over, it was a done deal. This was a promise of God. You will possess the city of Jericho. And their unquestioning obedience reflects their belief in this promise that God would do what he said. That God would give them the city. And you and I need to learn to possess great faith in the promises of God. God gives us some some sure promises in Scripture, doesn't he? And he wants us to believe them. Uh, Promises like this. Ask and it will be given to you. That's a promise, right? Then why don't we ask? Why don't we pray? See, we are to have faith in God's promises and act on those promises. We also need to possess great faith in the plans of God. Look in verse 3. You shall march around the city once, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. This was God's plan to give the people the city of Jericho, the, the plans of God. You and I need to have faith in God's plans. Even Listen, even when life doesn't make sense and life takes twists and turns and life causes us to scratch our head, we need to understand that God is on his throne and God has a plan for our life and we need to continue to follow him wherever he leads. We need to have faith in the, the plans of God for our life. And by the way, you need to hear this. God has a plan for your life. He does. A a plan for you. He knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He's prepared good works, Ephesians 2.10, for you to walk in. God has a plan for your life. We need to trust that plan and have faith in that plan and obey Him even when the plan doesn't make sense. Third, We need to possess great faith in the patience of God. This is a big one. How many of you have discovered that God doesn't always work on our timetable? Have you discovered that yet? Yeah. You've heard the saying that God is never late. But sometimes he's right on time, right? And and, and you and I need to understand that God has built patience into the fabric of a life of faith. If we're going to believe God, we've got to believe God even when things aren't happening at the speed we want them to happen. Look what it says in verse 3. Thus you shall do, into that verse, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horse before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. I wonder if these fighting men These warriors, I wonder if Joshua, the general, I wonder if they got impatient. 
Day three, march around the city. Day four, march around the city. Day five, day seven, march around it once. No, seven times. Do you, you think they might have gotten impatient? Like, can't we just go take the city? But you see, they were living out great faith in God's timetable, not their own. And God worked through their faith. And you and I, as we pray and seek God and we want to see things happen in our life or in the life of loved ones or in our community, we want to see things happen, but they're not happening on our timetable. We've got to possess great faith in God's patience. Fourth, if we're going to live lives of radical obedience, we must possess great faith in the presence of God. Look in verse 4. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, Before the ark. Now why did God want this piece of furniture from the tent of meeting leading the procession around Jericho? The ark of the covenant. This box that is overlaid with gold, has the mercy seat on top with the cherubim on top. The the Ten Commandments were in there. Aaron's bud was in there. Some manna was in there. Why did God want them to carry the ark around the city of Jericho? Well, you see, the ark very simply symbolized the presence of God. It was God's way of saying, I am with you. So as they saw that ark, as the priests saw the ark and carried the ark, and the musicians saw the ark, and the the soldiers saw the ark, they're reminded every day, God is with us. The presence of God. Now, some of you, listen to me carefully, some of you needed to be reminded today that God is with you. As a child of God, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And maybe you're going through something very difficult, and you've lost sight of God's presence in your life, and you think you're all alone, and you think that no one cares, but by faith, based upon what God says, You must remember that God has gone nowhere. God is with you. And you and I must possess great faith in the presence of God. Robert Murray McShane, a great young pastor in Scotland in the 1800s, said this. He said, If if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million men. And yet, I must remember that he really is with me. Even if I can't hear him praying for me, I I know that Jesus, my high priest, daily lives to make intercession for me. I, I must remember that Jesus is with me every step of the way. I don't have to fear. So we must possess great faith in the presence of God. But but fifth, if we're going to live lives of radical obedience, we must possess great faith in the power of God. Look in verse 15. Verse 15. On the seventh day they arose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. Number of completion in the Bible. At the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Who gave them the city? The Lord. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And so they understand here. As the walls fall down flat, they understand, hey, this is God giving us the city. This is not military might or prowess. This is not strategic thinking. This is God giving us the city. They had great faith in 
the power of God. So let me ask you a question. Are you living a life of radical obedience? If not, if not, probably you can trace it back to one of these five areas. You've lost sight of. You've, your faith is waning in the promises or plans or patience or presence or power of God. You need to be reminded that walls fall down by great faith. Wall, great faith fuels unquestioning obedience. Now, I really admire uh, labs, dogs that are trained to, to you know, to retrieve. I, I just, I really, I love to see a lab that's well trained working with its owner and, and doing what they want it to do. I've been around some of the situations, and it's, it's just incredible to watch. And, and one of the reasons I really admire that is because my lab is, um, doesn't do any of that. It's a lab mix, and, and he's a great dog, a sweet family dog, but he doesn't do anything. No tricks, no fetch, he doesn't stay, he follows you every, I mean, he, he just does nothing. He, he's just, he's not, he doesn't get the, the concept of obedience at all. So when I see a, a dog, you know, going back and forth based upon whistling and, and hand signs and doing what their owner wants them to do, it is, it's amazing to see. I love to watch it. Let me ask you a question. Do you respond quickly to the commands of your master? Do you respond quickly to the commands of your master with unquestioning obedience? People of Israel did, and God gave them a great victory. But there's a final thing I want you to see, a final scene of this story that I want you to see. We've seen the unusual strategy, and, and we've seen the unquestioning obedience. But third and last, I want you to see the unforgettable victory. The unforgettable victory. Look what happens back in Joshua chapter 6, verse verse 20. The Bible says, So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell uh, fell down flat, so the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Now, verse 21 and following, we'll get to that next week. I want to talk to you about the conquest of the land and, and, and God's judgment and, and more of that. But th- this morning, I want you to see that God gave them a great victory. The walls fell down flat. They went to the city. The people were scared to death. And they conquered that city, captured that city. Unforgettable victory. Now, why did God give them such a dramatic victory? Right? I mean, God could have just moved on the hearts of the people to surrender, Right? I mean, the king of Jericho could have walked out with a white flag, and it was all over. Why the, why the drama? Why the display of power? Why the walls falling flat? Why did God do that? Let me give you three reasons God did that, that God moved in this way. Number one, this dramatic victory put the other nations on notice. Look with me in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, 
and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. He tries to get a, a coalition together, but Israel defeats them as well. We'll get to that later. The sun stands still. Awesome passage. We'll, we'll get to chapter 10. But notice here that the kings in the land hear about Jericho. Do you notice that? And it says they fear greatly. I mean, it's almost like the battle's already over. They understand. They cannot stand against this nation and this nation's God. And word has spread about Jericho. Surely the other kings heard about walls that fall down flat. An unseen hand that causes walls to fall. And so this dramatic victory, the first victory in the promised land, puts the other nations on notice and fills their hearts with fear. God wants to understand that he is on the move. Secondly, this dramatic victory would give courage for future battles. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 8, verse 2. Joshua 8, verse 2. The Lord, again speaking to Joshua, giving him instruction, says, You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. So, hey, as you attack, as you lead your troops, remember Jericho. Remember my power. Remember my presence. Remember my plan. Don't fear. Go forth with courage. Remember Jericho. And this dramatic victory at Jericho would give the people courage for future battles. They would never forget what God did at Jericho. Which leads to number three. This dramatic victory would be a perpetual marker of grace. They would never forget it. I mean, how can you forget walls that fall down? I was thinking about this passage this week as I was on the lawnmower thinking about it. And I started thinking about how uh, I love to talk to uh, veterans of our armed forces, World War II veterans, Vietnam veterans, even uh, veterans of more recent uh, conflicts. And it's just fascinating to talk to them and, and hear their story and uh, the battles they were engaged in, their role in all of that. It's just, I just love to talk to veterans. And I thought about this. You know that as time went by, there were some veterans of Jericho. And there were some new generations. And they got to say, hey, see that guy over there? He was there when the walls fell down. Can you imagine some young guys getting together with this hero and saying, tell me about the time the walls fell down flat. And this story, this movement of God would be a perpetual marker of grace. Look what it says over in Joshua 24. I want to show you this. This is fascinating. Joshua 24, verse 11. The Bible says, this is Joshua recounting God's faithfulness. This is kind of closing down the book. He says there in verse 11, And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you. 
which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. Listen to this. You, you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You know what God's saying there through Joshua? This land that I've given you is a gift of grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. It was my power. I gave it to you as a gift of grace. And Joshua's reminding them here, remember Jericho. Remember that battle. God gave us the city. And this dramatic display of God's power, this victory would be a perpetual marker of grace in the life of Israel for generations. And I started thinking about that in my own life. And I started thinking about some perpetual markers of grace. Some, some moments in my life where God moved dramatically. And I'll never forget those times. I thought about my conversion at nine years of age. So my pastor came out and talked to me at my house, at my dining room table, and walked me through some verses in Romans and I called the name of Jesus. I knew I was a sinner in need of a Savior and I was saved. And my life's never been the same. I was forgiven of everything, past, present, future. And the Holy Spirit entered my life and began to transform me from the inside out. I don't deserve that. That's, that's grace. I deserve wrath. I deserve judgment. I deserve hell. But I'm so grateful for that dramatic display of God's grace in my life the moment I was saved. I think about my late teenage years in college and I was not walking with the Lord. He was not my priority. Things had been shifted in my life and, and God got my, det- my attention and he took me through a period of brokenness and it was awful, but it was a dramatic display of grace. God cared too much about me to just let me go my own way. By the way, I say this statement. One of the ways I know I'm a Christian is God won't leave me alone. When I start to stray, the Holy Spirit of God works with convicting power, and God will discipline if He needs to to get me back on the right path. And I think about that, that, that grace. I mean, God could have let me continue on in my foolishness, but He intervened. And shortly thereafter, as I began to seek first the kingdom of God, God called me to, to gospel preaching ministry. I don't, I, don't, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve this. It's grace. I think about the grace of my wedding day. A moment I'll never, ever forget. I think about how God orchestrated things to bring Claire and, 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 and me together. I think about how we were spiritually on the same page. I mean, we were in lockstep when we got married. And by the way, it's important, young people, that you marry someone that's in lockstep with you spiritually. I'm not just talking about someone who says they're a Christian. I mean, they believe the same things you believe. I mean, I, I knew that the that, that woman I was marrying believed the Bible was God's word. She believed that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And, and we, we were in lockstep spiritually. And, and God did all that. And I don't deserve a wife like that. But, but God did it. It's grace. It's a perpetual marker in my 
life. I think about the stewardship of, of the kids God's given us. And I don't deserve that. And it's, just, it's, just, it's just grace. And as you think about your life, as you think about what God's done in, in your life, think about those moments where God intervened graciously. Think about this church. I don't deserve to pastor a church like Longview Point. I don't deserve to have a front row seat to see God do what he's done for almost 15 years now. People ask about our church, and I say, listen, God's been better at us than we deserve. Not a perfect church. We don't have it all figured out. Got a lot of things we need to work on. But God's been good, hasn't he? He's been good. I think, I don't deserve to pastor a church like the point. It is grace. And so this story of Jericho was unforgettable. They would, ne- they would never forget it, would they? And God does things in our lives that are unforgettable too. So that we will constantly remember His grace. The unforgettable victory. So here's what I want you to walk away with. Here's the point of this sermon. If I could give it to you in one sentence. God moves. Here's what Joshua 6 teaches us. God moves in mysterious ways to show His power and accomplish His purposes for His glory. If, if you see God doing something in your life that's perplexing, you're probably about to see something dramatic. And that should fuel your faith, which fuels your radical obedience.